But what are some of the most important things in your life? Probably health, family, that's a big one too. But there's one more that longevity experts say is just as important as any, and very few people ever guess what it is. Do you know? I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder, the program that helps you realize age is not something to fear, but to embrace. It's an opportunity for you to follow your passions like never before. All right, so what is it that's so important that we sometimes don't even realize it? Well, it's a sense of purpose. It's something we all need, a driving force in life, a reason to get up in the morning, something that we believe in that motivates us to want to make a difference. And we're going to talk about that today and discuss the growing evidence that having a sense of purpose is actually linked to better health and greater well-being. Yeah, it's a great conversation, and we're going to talk with a world record-holding runner who is 100 years old, and he's convinced that he's alive today because of just two things, both of which he believes will add years to your life as well. We'll find out what those are. Also, we'll meet the inspiring inventor of the tandem parachute and learn how taking the plunge actually helped him soar in ways that he never thought imaginable. But first, a surprise. Surprising look at how negative views of aging actually affect us all. In fact, gerontologist Tracy Gendron says everything we think we know about aging, it's actually wrong. We'll find out what she believes is right and how we can get ourselves on the right track. Ordinary people living extraordinary lives, this is Growing Bolder. Well, have you ever had this happen? Out of the blue, somebody asks you how old you are. Do you have to take a second to think? It's because we don't feel an age. Unless somebody asks, we don't even think about it. And why does it matter anyway? I'm Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Bolder. And let's talk about that with a fascinating person, a nationally recognized gerontologist and author of the book Ageism Unmasked, Exploring Age Bias and How to End It. Very happy to say hi to Tracy Gendron. Hey, Tracy, how are you? Hi, Bill. I'm terrific. Thanks for having me. Listen, we love the topic of the book, love the book, and you don't pull any punches in this, too. You get right to it. And, folks, the very first line of the whole thing, Tracy writes, everything you know about aging is wrong. So, Tracy, what are we missing? Yeah, love that provocative opening because it is true. Everything that we are taught about aging is wrong. Basically, what I'm trying to say is that throughout our lives, we have all of these experiences that teach us that getting old is bad, getting old is scary, um, that aging is all about decline. And that starts from a really young age, even from the bedtime stories that we read to our children that are filled with older characters that are portrayed as either silly or feeble or scary. We start to kind of lock into our minds that aging is something that we need to be afraid of. And that goes throughout our entire life, even through, you know, adulthood, when we're really bombarded with messages, militaristic messages, that aging is something that should be battled, that there's a war against the visible signs of aging. And what we fail to see is that aging is not only about decline, because our bodies do change, but it's also about growth. It's also about development. It's holistic. It's biological. It's psychological. It's social. And that is the story less told. 
So if we are going to come out against ageism and encourage people not to be ageist, let's define it. What does it really mean? So ageism is broadly discrimination based on age. And what I really want people to understand is that that means towards both younger and older people. It's any time that we are othering or marginalizing people based on their age. And it can look a lot of different ways. It can look as discrimination against people, but really scarily and importantly, it can also look about discomfort with our own aging or disassociating with our own aging. As you started off to say, when we're afraid to say how old we are, or maybe we say I'm 69 years young instead of old, we're really just trying to like band-aid the stigma that we associate and the fear of judgment that we have with being older. So this is a really important point here you're hitting on because um, a lot of it's our fault. I mean, one thing about ageism that we don't always remember is it just isn't about what others think. It's like you said, we start to believe it ourselves. And in the case of age, older people can be as ageist as anybody. Absolutely. And that's actually the most damaging part is that internalized ageism, the self-directed ageism. And it's actually no wonder when you think about how long these negative messages about aging have been around, it's no wonder that older people have such a high level of internalized ageism. It has been around them their entire lives. It's literally been in the air that they breathe. Um, I have an example of a ladies' home journal from 1959 with a big title on the cover that says, look 20 years younger. So this has been around for you know older people's entire lifetimes. And what we don't really talk about is how bad it is for our health, but we have knowledge just like we do with smoking and with not exercising, with not eating well, that it actually impacts our health and our wellness and even our longevity. So talk about that a little more. It impacts our health and wellness, ageism? It does. We have decades of research that show that people that have negative views of their own aging take longer to recover from illnesses. They're more likely to have biomarkers for Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia. And they're even, on average, living seven and a half years less than people that have positive views of their own aging. So this is no small contribution. Yeah, uh, Mark Middleton likes to say all the time, what the mind believes the body embraces. So our own self-image is a huge factor in how we age. A huge factor. When we carry that anxiety with us and that fear and that dread, we're projecting onto our future possible selves. Think about how much power if we could regain that feeling of looking forward to what is to come in our lives at all ages and all stages. You know, this is such an important conversation, and it really is kind of heavy, and I think most people, you know, when they read what it's about, they probably think, oh, Tracy's going to come on, it's going to be kind of light, and we're going to have a few chuckles and tell a few sad stories, but this, this is a serious thing. I mean, we don't tolerate racism, we don't tolerate gender in- inequality, but for some reason, it's okay to go to a Hallmark store and buy a, a greeting card that says, hey, you forgot your car keys again. Oh, absolutely. And you're hitting on the birthday card piece, which, you know, my kids are adults now, but when they were younger, they hated going grocery shopping with me when we were looking for birthday cards because I would embarrass them in the birthday card aisle because it's just so egregious. But yes, we don't really talk about this as much as we need to, as much as we should. And with an emphasis now 
on increasing DEI initiatives, on really thinking about how we create equitable societies. Age and ability inclusion um, is, is right up there, and it's time to have this conversation. It seems, too, that uh, people tend to dismiss it because it doesn't always come in the form of somebody trying to insult each other, put somebody down, or being mean, because there's a form of ageism that's kind of hidden in kindness. Oh, can I speak a little louder for you? Can I help you cross the street? Or, hey, you look so good for your age. Great point. So that's called benevolent ageism, and that is that positive kind of ageism where we're either trying to help somebody or we may be trying to give a compliment and we don't realize that what we're saying when we do these things is actually perpetuating this undertone of ageist sentiments. And I love the examples you gave, you know, just because somebody's old, um, they may not want your help crossing the street. It's a lovely gesture, but to make an assumption just based on somebody's age or somebody's ability does tip us into ageism and ableism. Or when we say to someone, oh, gosh, I haven't seen you in 20 years. You look great for your age. Well, what is my age supposed to look like? And what is it that you're really trying to tell me? I think you're really trying to tell me that I look great. But to qualify it means that my age shouldn't look great. So I think we need to start to really think critically about the way that we say things and actually what we mean when we say them. I wonder, too, Tracy, if as a gerontologist or when you are talking about the book and bringing the topic of ageism up, people are like, hey, look, there are so many problems in the world today. Can't you just take a joke? Yeah, you do lose your car keys. Your back does always go out. You are forgetful. What's the big deal? Yeah, and the big deal is right what I said before. This is not about political correctness. This is about our health. This is about our happiness. This is about longevity. And if that's not enough reason for you, there's actually ample literature, including my own research, that talks about the economic consequences and business consequences to it. Businesses lose money by alienating older customers. We lose opportunities for innovations by focusing on what we think older people need instead of what they actually want. So there's a lot of reasons why it's actually not funny, and we're missing out on all of these opportunities. And it sounds like being alarmist, but it's like society really can't wait to get rid of us as we age, or or at least hide us by shaming us into coloring our hair, the little we may have left, or or getting rid of the wrinkles. And then there, there are these adult communities where you should go live as soon as you hit 55, segregated and away from everybody else. Exactly. And, you know, that that segregation of older people is fascinating to me. And in the book, I start to explore the kind of how we got here. Because you don't even really think about it anymore. Older people just live behind those walls, behind those gates in that community. And it's also people that have limitations, disabilities, cognitive impairments. But when you take people out of your society, of course, it's going to set up othering. And of course, it's going to set up in-groups and out-groups and making certain people feel physically separated from other people. Yet when you ask older people, the majority want to live in their homes, to live in their communities, to be with people of different ages. So there's a mismatch there between what we think older people want and need and what they actually want and need. 
Yeah, it comes from all sides too, doesn't it? I mean, I, I was watching the news, I think it was just the other day, where the anchor said an assailant attacked an elderly woman, and I think the woman was 62 years old, treated and released. Elderly? What, what's with the labels? What should we be called? That's such a great question, and one that I think everybody really needs to think about. I don't love the term elderly because I think it really brings to mind a very homogenous group of frail people. And the thing with being older is that you're actually more unique the older you get, the more like yourself, the less like other people. Um, And that's something that's really unique to us growing older. But ultimately, I don't know if there's any word that works as long as you stigmatize the word. So we have so much value judgment based on being old. People don't like to be called elders. They don't like to be called seniors. They don't like to be called older people. Well, why? Because it's stigmatized, because it's devalued. So until we actually get to the root of it, I'm not sure there's going to be a single word that just magically makes it all better. I think we just need to reclaim old. I think we just need to say when we're old or growing older um, and not with something with dread, but as something that we're proud of and that we can look forward to. Yeah, take the negative stigma out of old. And I guess it's good, too, that there isn't an easy term to fit in because then it's them and us and then you have the barrier again. You know, you've studied aging more than most of us. Do you expect anything to change? What's it, what's it going to take? Is it, is it like a legal issue, a political thing, or does it come from inside all of us? And then is it even possible? It's a great question. And I think it's all of those things. But truly, in my mind, change happens one person at a time. And we are in the midst of a movement. This may be at the beginning stages, but not the very beginning stages. There are people that have been really working on this for for a decade or more now to kind of raise awareness and to empower people to say, you know what, we can think of aging differently. We can think about our lifespan differently. So the movement is there. It's just going to take more and more people to get on board and to understand that this matters. This matters to them. This matters to their loved ones. This matters to their businesses. It matters to the creation of an equitable society. But can we get there? We can definitely get there. And it's one of the reasons, Tracy, that your book is really for everybody. It's it's not like it's something that you would read only if you had a class. I mean, it, you're you're talking directly to us in it. And one of the most interesting parts is where you look back over time and where a lot of this came from. I didn't know anything about it or hadn't really thought about the biomedical model of aging. Yes, the biomedical model of aging was one of those pivotal moments in time where we started to see aging Um, more is something to be solved and medicine to be able to cure. And you can see what might happen if we start to see old age as something that is either not worth treating or the, the, need for us to really be focusing on, on curative medicine. It means that people value being older less, but also value, um, wanting to work with younger people over older people, especially within healthcare. And then to couch kind of aging as a disease um, that's kind of another step in the process that led us towards where we are. So that that was actually quite the contribution. And it sure seems like we're continuing to go the wrong way down the highway. 
We are, I think there's more and more physicians that are really seeking out geriatric knowledge. There's more and more universities that I think are really starting to embed geriatrics curriculum. So again, I always like to highlight the positive things that are happening out there because there are positive things. But yes, we have a critical shortage of people that want to work in these specialty areas and a larger and larger number of people that are going to be older. So there's clearly a mismatch there. Yeah, I hope you're right that it's starting to go the right direction because healthcare is one of the most frightening aspects of aging. Absolutely. And when you think about it, the system itself is not built well for it. It's built based on reimbursements and on efficiency with, you know, 10, 15 minute appointments. And for people that are older that may have more complex conditions or comorbidities that need a little bit more time, the system kind of can work against them that way. You know how they say when somebody loses their hearing or maybe one of their other senses that the other senses become sharper? Do you think that maybe as we physically age and we do experience some physical losses that maybe other aspects of ourselves actually get stronger or better? Oh, I love that question. And actually, you are absolutely right, Bill. There's actually gerontological theory that goes along with that to say that, yes, Actually, older people in general are happier despite physical limitations, despite issues that they may have. And part of that is because we have a greater sense of freedom to be who we are as we are older. A lot of the constraints of midlife where we're trying to conform, where we're trying to fit in, where we're focused on productivity, um, they really transition in later life and we can adapt in beautiful ways. So the literature absolutely shows, the research shows that older people find happiness and joy and meaning um, in new and exciting ways. You know, it's, uh, it, it is kind of funny. I mean, I think we all grow up and sort of fear it. You know, you, you associate old with dead or death, and there's a big, long period in between there where it feels pretty good to be this age. Absolutely. And I think one of the questions I like to ask people is, would you want to be a younger version of yourself? And what I generally get is other than maybe in some physical ways, yes, my knees used to work better. or Yes, I had a little bit more stamina, but otherwise, no, I worked way too hard. I went through some really tough things in my life to get to where I am today, to develop the coping skills that I have today. There's no way I would want to be the younger version. So imagine if we look at aging like that instead of looking at what was lost, but look at what we've gained. Yeah, we spend so much of our lives trying to prove ourselves that I think once we get to a certain point and we start kind of like just living, just finding what our passions are and doing the things that really interest us and following our curiosity instead of, you know, instead of proving ourselves, that's when life really becomes uh, fulfilling. Exactly. And there's an interesting phenomenon that way where I think a lot of people who talk with older adults, they they tend to talk about who they used to be or what they used to do. Like even just this concept of retirement is really about the fact that you used to work full time, but it doesn't tell me anything about who you are or what your goals are or what you want to accomplish moving forward. So imagine if we started to talk to older people about their future possible selves about, you know, who they still wanted to become. What an incredible change that would be. But this is this has been kind of like uh, watching Wimbledon. You know, we've been hitting some balls across the net, and in just a short amount of time, we've really touched on a lot of inspiring, uplifting, major issues out there that, that kind of make getting older actually seem pretty cool. Right? Well, thank you for asking the great questions, because, yeah, that's very exciting stuff. 
Well, let me give you the last serve here. What, 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 would you, what would you hope or what would you think is the most important thing to walk away from your book remembering, understanding, knowing? What do you, what do you wish we really understood about aging? I think the first thing is I want everybody to identify with the fact that we are all aging. There's no such thing as someone that is not aging. So no matter what age you are, no matter what stage of life you're in, this is about you. This is relevant to you. And that we can each individually craft our own definition of what it means to age successfully. We can really think through what our goals are, what our purpose is, how we can continue to grow and how we can continue to become. So I think if each person kind of realizes that it starts here, that that's how we will build the momentum to to change ultimately how people see the whole aging process. And it's something we all have in common because every single one of us is aging every single day. Once again, the book is called Ageism Unmasked. It's a great read. This was a great chat, a really important conversation that hopefully you'll have with uh, the people in your life that matter as well because it does make a difference, as she said, not just mentally, but in our health as well and in how you perceive the life you have to live. An important conversation with Tracy Gendron. Thank you so much, Tracy. Great work. Up next, if you want to know how to live to be 100, don't ask your doctor. Ask someone who's actually done it. That's what we're going to do, and he's going to share two things that he says we all need to start doing today. That's next on Growing Bold. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. This is Growing Boulder. I'm Bill, and that's Mark over there. And Mr. Middleton is a guy who just might know as much about active centenarians as anybody out there. And, Mark, we were listening to your inspiring podcast called Fountain of Youth, which is available to listen to, folks. I highly recommend it. We were amazed by another one of your guests. Tell us a little bit about Mike Fremont. Yeah, he amazed me as well, Bill. Uh, He's a guy that you folks are going to love. He turned 100 years old just this year. And he didn't celebrate it in a nursing home. He didn't do it sitting in a wheelchair, wrapped in a blanket, like the stereotypes lead us to believe. Mike celebrated with a run on the beach, a party in the park, and a full day of fun with his many friends and family. And to put it into perspective, he's a guy who never thought he'd even reach the age of 70. So what can we learn from Mike? Well, here's an excerpt from our conversation on the Fountain of Youth podcast. If you want to know my story, I got uh, colorectal cancer at the age of 69. And they said at the Cleveland Clinic, if we don't operate on you now, you will be dead in three months because this cancer has metastasized. 
and they showed me with a television set what my insides looked like, which I couldn't interpret. But by chance, one of my sons who lived in Los Angeles sent me a copy of a book in 1985. What I'm talking to you about took place in 1991 at the Cleveland Clinic. But in 1985, he sent me this book called The Cancer Prevention Diet, which I naturally did not read. <laughs> and uh, I called him to thank him and said, why, why did you send me this? He said, you may need it someday, 1985. So in 1991, I read it in one day and told the Cleveland Clinic I was not going to be operated on and that uh, I was going on a diet and they should watch me. And they didn't watch me, but I shrank the tumor. The only thing I did in that succeeding year was to change my diet to what was then known as a macrobiotic diet introduced by a ch Japanese chap named Michio Kushi. And I went to see him in Western Massachusetts. And they, they showed the group of us how to cook um, the macrobiotic diet, which was, you might say, a predecessor to the vegan diet, which itself is a predecessor to what we call the whole foods plant-based diet of Colin Campbell, Dr. Campbell is the predominant nutritionist, so far as I'm concerned, in the world ever. He understood what, it, what causes cancer. Anyway, as soon as I went on the diet, 1991, two weeks after that, let's say, a week and a half or two, I realized that I'd lost the arthritis in my neck, my right shoulder, and my left-hand fingers. I was normal again. And all I'd done was change my diet. Well, I, I want to I ask you about the diet, uh, Mike, but let's recap very quickly because there's a lot of fascinating stuff in what you said. Your son sent you a book that you didn't read for six years. The book was uh, Cancer Prevention Diet by Michio Kushi. Uh, you read the book. You refused treatment for cancer for which you were, the prognosis was you had three months to live. You refused the treatment. You read the book. You changed your diet. And that was 30 years ago. And here yeah. you are today at 100, year old, 100 years old going strong. So let's talk about the diet. You mentioned that it is a plant-based diet. What do you eat? Mike, or maybe more appropriately, what don't you eat these days? What, what I don't eat, well, let's put it this way. No animal protein, period. That means no eggs, no milk products, no meat, no fish, no seafood. And there's an extraordinarily rich diet in nutrition available that many people across the world naturally eat. And that's why some groups in remote places live very long times. 
in my opinion. So what do you eat, Mike? Beans, peas, asparagus, cabbage, salads of any kind, except uh, having meat and fish and seafood. <laughs> it's an extraordinarily rich diet. And there are lots of books on that. And what the, the athletic community has learned is that that's the way to eat if you're going to win the race. And you certainly win the race, and I want to talk about that. But first, let me ask you a question that I know probably everybody asks you when they hear that you eat no animal products at all. The question that you get is, but where do you get your protein? And your answer is? My answer is there is vegetable protein and animal protein. And if you question that, consider the elephant, the hippopotamuses, the rhinoceroses, none of which eat any animal protein. They're big, they're tough, they're dangerous, and they live a long time. If animals can do it, couldn't we? We're trying. <laughs> I, I, I love it. I love this conversation. We wanted to talk to Mike Fremont, who is a world record holding runner, but we haven't even talked about running yet because, you know, he believes that he is powered by plants. He believes that he is still alive at 100, uh, primarily because of his diet, but certainly because of his exercise. So let's talk about running, Mike. Um, I mentioned that you run, but what I didn't mention in the lead in is that you are a multiple age group American record holder. What records have you set and do you still compete? At the age of 88, I set a world single age marathon run record. And world single age doesn't mean an age group of say 85 to 89 or 90 to 94, or anything like that. It's a single age, so that the age of 88, I was the fastest person on record to have run a marathon. Wow. Anywhere. At age 90, I did the same thing, a marathon, in Huntington, West Virginia. It was a hunting marathon. And at uh, age 90 and 91, I ran world records half marathon, single age. And a single age is, a, if you look that up, you'll find it for all different uh, running distances. And then at age uh, 96, the director of the Drake Relays in Des Moines, Iowa, was a friend of mine, and he asked me if I'd come over and run in the, in the relay uh, race for one mile and the 800 meters. I said, look, I'm a long-distance guy. He said, I can almost guarantee you a uh, medal if you, if you come over. <laughs> he said... We will pay for your and your wife's expense to come to Des Moines from Cincinnati. 
So I asked her if she wanted to go, and she says, let's do it. So I did. <laughs> and I took 58 seconds off the mile time. So I did it in 13 minutes and 48 seconds, which is very slow. But for the age of 96. It's amazing. I set a record. <laughs> <laughs> I was there five days. I didn't do so well in the 800 meters, which is kind of a dash. Uh, 800 meters, you don't even get warmed up in. <laughs> so I ran the 800 and didn't break a record. We're talking with Mike Fremont, folks, 100 years old, still runs. Uh, and running is really not all you do, Mike. Uh, what, what else do you do to stay in shape? I know you have another passion or two. Well, when I was 40, a guy called me and asked me if I wanted to race in a canoe. I said, are you going to be in it? Because he was 40 also. I said, if you can do it, I can. Let's do it. So we did. <laughs> and uh, canoe racing, and especially long-distance canoe racing, uh, kind of stuck with me. And I got canoes, and I got partners, and began to get interested in racing uh, on rivers. And uh, rivers was another piece of my uh, interest. And I spent the next 40 years working on rivers to preserve them and restore them. And that's, that's really what I have focused on in much of my life is environmental stuff, especially rivers. I was a founder of American Rivers, a founder of 33 of us in 1973. But in the previous year, I was president of Rivers Unlimited, which was an Ohio State organization protecting rivers, which was the first statewide river group in the nation. And it thrives today. You know, Mike, I, let me ask you about something else. Uh, it, it seems to me from what little I've, I, I've observed of your life that it's critically important to you to be able to hang out with family, friends, and multiple generations. Can you talk about what that socialization brings to your life? Well, of course, you know, if you were around this long, you're bound to meet a few people. <laughs> <laughs> My class at, uh, at school, my senior year, had 116 in it, and there are five left <laughs> mm. today. And I talked to one of the five. <laughs> he called me. <laughs> he said, I knew it was your birthday. I wanted to call you. And I said, I knew it was your birthday. <laughs> I'm glad you called. <laughs> you know, how, how many times has someone told you, Mike, that they love your smile and they love your laugh? Uh, you know, because it is engaging. And... I don't think it it can't belie the fact that you still enjoy life. So tell us about that. Is life at 100 fun? Are you enjoying it? Well, it's wonderful to go out and canoe on a lake that's five minutes away, 10 minutes away with a bunch of guys who are anxious to race. These, these are racing canoes. They're fun. You really move in them. <laughs> in beautiful places, beautiful rivers. Take your choice. Racing canoes for 60 years. 
That's a way of getting out. I don't climb the mountains anymore in New England because it's a little bit difficult for me, even though I can run. Some of the rocks are pretty difficult for me. Yeah, that that's remarkable. And you know, Mike, I other than the obvious aches and pains that everybody experiences as they get older, you know, what's it like? Take us inside the psyche, if you will, of a 100-year-old. Is it true that you still inside feel like you're 18 and that, you know, the that that you, you, it's it's not a whole lot different now than it was decades ago? Absolutely. Absolutely. I feel like I'm 18. I feel a lot smarter than I was when I was 18. But I have the same urges as ordinary people. <laughs> we won't get into those. So so I got to ask you this. And again, another one of these questions that you probably get asked by everybody, and that is, you know, what, what's the secret? What's the moral of the Mike Fremont story? I mean, what, what, what's, what's the key to, to living a life that, uh, that, that is satisfying at age 100? What can you share with us? I can tell you that my own point of view about it is that the greatest rewards that a person can earn come from helping other people, no matter in what way. You get the satisfaction out of helping other people, and that's a tremendous satisfaction. And it won't quit. Pays off in every way. That itself is, a, is the payoff. Nothing else matters. Money doesn't matter. It looks doesn't matter. You're a good man, Mike Freeman. You're also, uh, and final question, unless you say something else that, that, that requires another question, but I've seen pictures of you. And you are ripped. I mean, you've got some guns, as, as the kids say. Do you lift weights? What do you do to, to have the muscle tone that you have uh, at age 100? Well, I do push-ups and I do chin-ups. Not enough. <laughs> Isn't he something, Bill, an active body and obviously an active mind as well? Just a bit of our chat with the fascinating Mike Fremont, 100 years old, still loving life. And here's the good news for the rest of us. There are more Mike Fremonts every day. Centenarians are now the fastest-growing demographic in America, and they may not have a lifestyle like Mike, but what he is doing as far as diet and exercise is giving himself the best possible chance of not just living longer, but living better. And because of people like Mike, we know that an active and healthy life, even after the age of 100, is now possible for most of us. Up next, we'll meet the man who made it possible for any of us to safely experience the thrill of skydiving. But you know what? It's his passion for experiencing life that really sets him apart. And that's next on Growing Boulder. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingbolder.com slash podcasts.
Are you ready to start growing bolder? I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton. And Mark, you met a guy who almost single-handedly opened up the skies to anybody because of his vision and his determination to make it a reality. Anyone who would like to jump out of a plane can now do it. I think it's impossible to overstate, Bill, the extent of what he has done. His name is Bill Booth, and he invented the tandem parachute, which, as Bill said, allows anyone to safely experience a jump tethered to an experienced diver. So you know he's got to be an interesting guy on that alone. But what really puts him over the top is his attitude about living life to the fullest and making the most of every single day. Now in his mid-70s, Bill Booth has composed a remarkable life, a never-ending adventure that began the day a skydiver landed on the road in front of his car more than 50 years ago. I picked him up, took him back to the drop zone, and two hours later I made my first jump. Booth was the right guy at exactly the right time. When I started skydiving, parachutes hadn't changed in, in 40, 50 years. All right. It was right at the time when parachutes went from being a life-saving device or a military tool to a recreational toy. Harnesses were uncomfortable, openings were hard, and malfunctions were common. With the heart of an engineer and the spirit of an entrepreneur, Booth went to work. I started in a garage, just sewing equipment for myself, and now I've got three companies with about 150 employees. He designed and patented a new pilot chute and a rapid release system for malfunctioning canopies. He made the sport safer, and then he wanted to make it accessible to anyone, including the elderly and the disabled. So he invented the tandem harness and opened the floodgates to recreational skydiving. We had to develop systems. It's much more complex. Theoretically, much more dangerous than solo jumping. But the fatality rate is 500% lower. And the reason is, I wrote the rules to make bad behavior illegal. And they have to do it or they'll lose the certification. With global control of the tandem skydiving market, the world opened up for Booth. The Russians hired him to do what few thought was possible, parachute emergency workers onto the North Pole for rescue missions. He not only did it, he did it six times, once with his 12-year-old daughter Katie. For her science fair project in eighth grade, she brought back ice samples and tested for PCBs and doxins oh. and things like this. And the girl before her was testing the effect of chlorine pools on scrunchies, you know? <laughs> and then the, the, the judge said, you, you went to the North Pole to get ice samples to test for, you know, poly this? And she said, yeah. And he said, you win, okay. <laughs> Booth now had the equivalent of a universal parachuting passport, and he and his wife, Terry, used it to turn the world into their personal playground. After 6,500 jumps, just jumping is not that exciting to me. You want to go somewhere. And I found out really early that expedition skydiving, jumping into unusual and difficult places, is a real thrill. Bill and Terry hiked for days in the mountains of Nepal to reach a short, dangerous airstrip at 15,000 feet. From there, it was a perilous plane ride to 30,000 feet to exit above Mount Everest, where the wind chill was minus 105. It was illegal to jump over the pyramids until an Egyptian general's son took up skydiving and invited Booth to make one of the first jumps ever over the Great Pyramid of Giza. I saw them down there in free fall, got the parachute open, looked down, and it brought tears to my eyes. 
When the Crown Prince of Dubai took up skydiving, he hosted Bill and Terry at the seven-star Burj Al Arab Hotel, loaned them his Lamborghini, and arranged a jump for Bill over Palm Island. Getting permission to skydive on Antarctica is nearly impossible, and the cost is outrageous unless you're Bill Booth. Bill and Terry made it all the way to the South Pole, where he completed the elusive Grand Slam of skydiving all seven continents and both poles. Booth consulted with Alan Eustace and his company built the parachute system that Eustace used to jump from the stratosphere, setting a new world freefall record from 135,800 feet. The last 10 years have been one adventure after another, an expedition to Africa with a dip in Devil's Pool at the top of Victoria Falls, a getaway to the Taj Mahal, the Great Wall of China, the Jurassic Park Falls on the island of Kauai, Bora Bora, Australia, England, Mexico, the Bahamas, and many more. I enjoy each new adventure with Bill. Each one is, you come home saying that was the best. So all of them are just been amazing. It's amazing what these machines can do. If he's not traveling, Booth is likely in his factory overseeing production for clients worldwide. For years, he commuted in a seaplane from his home on a spring-fed lake, making quick stops just about whenever and wherever he wanted. I'm going to head down the river south just beyond that boat. That was before he renovated a home on the St. Johns River, providing the opportunity to engage in one of his new passions, classic wooden boats. I'm out in the boat every day, two or three times a day, and I'm in the airplane a couple times a week, you know, so. If he's not traveling, Booth spends his summers on Blue Mountain Lake in the Adirondacks, living in a renovated boathouse with another wooden boat downstairs and his seaplane outside. He's built a life around the people, the places, and the things he loves, and he has no intention of slowing down. When I wake up in the morning, before I try to get out of bed, I pretend I'm 18, you know? and I get out of bed and look in the mirror and realize I'm not. But I can do everything I did when I was 18. It just takes longer, I think. And now I appreciate stuff more. So I think society taught us that after maybe 40, your life was over and useless. <laughs> and it, it's, it's proved not to be true. You can still do neat stuff. And now I'm thinking the same thing I thought 10 years ago. What am I going to do now? But there's still a lot to do. Man, there is not only a lot to do, but by making some smart choices, we can increase the odds that we'll all have more time to do them than we ever thought possible. Bill Booth revolutionized skydiving. He made it possible for any of us to give it a try. And who knows, he just might do the same thing for active aging, setting an example, making it possible for any of us to try to achieve things we never thought possible. Up next, the compelling and provocative On My Mind with Mark. This is Growing Boulder. Subscribe to Growing Boulder magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. 
Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingbolder.com slash podcasts. My guards stood hard when abstract threats to noble, to neglect. This is Growing Boulder, and it's time now for a segment called On My Mind with Mark. And as most of you know, he is the founder and CEO of Growing Boulder. And he has a way of looking at aging and and presenting it where instead of being afraid or dreading it, you can't wait to get there to experience all life has to offer. And Mark, one of the ways that happens is by understanding what happens and what is possible as we age. You know, Bill, I think we all remember that show, The Biggest Loser. I don't know whether it's still on or not, but, uh, you know, they always paraded these overweight people out at the beginning, and then at the end, one of them was the winner. Uh, You could always pick one of the finalists, at least, the top two or three, when they said he or she is a former athlete, and then they let themselves go. Uh, And the reason you could do that is, is because... There's this phenomenon that allows us to actually bank future fitness. And I remind myself of this all the time when I don't feel like working out. Muscle cells are different than every other cell in the body in that they are multinucleated. They have multiple nucleus in muscle cells. And as you work out, these nucleus enable the development of muscle fiber. You get bigger, you get stronger. But when you stop working out and the muscles begin to atrophy, here's what we've just learned is that these muscles cell nucleus don't go away. They just lie dormant until you start to work out again, and then they begin to expand and enable the development of muscle fiber much, much more quickly, even decades after you worked out. And I know you've experienced this, Bill. If you lifted weights 20 or 30 years ago, and then you come back and start doing it again, you get stronger more quickly. If you ran years ago and then stop but start, you begin to run faster more quickly. So you can actually bank future fitness. Whatever you do today, even if you stop it, will help you in the future if you encounter some sort of health setback. So so you're in in essence, you're telling me that the Bill Schaefer PIO theory of aging is now just it's it's trash. <laughs> PIO put it off until the last minute is the wrong way to look at fitness because what you do now actually counts for the rest of your life? You need to transform P-I-O to D-I-N. Do it now. Because again, even if you stop, even if you stop doing it, it will pay dividends 20 or 30 years from now. And who doesn't want to have that extra strength when you're 70 or 80 or 90 and you encounter a setback? And yet another excellent On My Mind with Mark Middleton. That's going to wrap up this edition of Growing Boulder. So glad you're with us. Make sure you check us out online and we'll see you right back here again very, very soon. The Growing Boulder Radio Show is a production of Growing Boulder, LLC. All rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula, and our most important team member, you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears, going high and mighty trap. Countless fire and flaming road, using ideas as my map.